Hey everybody, it's H, and welcome back for the fourth installment of Dune Pod, your one-stop shop to get ready for the new Dune movie. This week, I'm joined as always by my co-host Jason. He goes, it's rough. And by podcasting legend Veronica Belmont. Time is a flat circle, man. It's just what it comes back to. So we revisit Denny Villeneuve's first outing as a science fiction director, 2016's Arrival, starring Amy Adams and Jeremy Renner. We explore the concepts of free will, the risks we're willing to take for love, and tell you when you can finally see the first Dune trailer. If you're enjoying the show, leave us a rating and a review wherever you listen to your podcasts, as it really helps new listeners find the show. And now, without further ado, Arrival. Tell me all the secrets of podcasting, first of all. Gosh, I've been doing Sword and Laser now for 12 years. It's kind of crazy. Yeah. Um... So that's, that's the only secret is just keep doing it and as yeah. eventually it'll be good. When did you all have the TV show? That was... Uh, is that like a G4 or something? Where, where was no, that? No, it was for um, Felicia Day's um, oh, YouTube right. network. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Got it. yeah Geek and Sundry. Um, so God, when was that? I think that was in 2012, mm. I think. We did two years of that, two seasons of that. Got it. Well, let me just pretend like we were just starting here. Veronica Belmont, welcome to Dune Pod. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited. Yeah. Well, so we always start with with a test. So do you want to spell Bene Gesserit or Kwisatz Haderach? <laughs> oh, God. Um, that's hard. Bene Gesserit is, it's, I think that one's a little bit easier, but uh, B-E-N-E. Bene. I'm just going to try to bene, bene, <laughs> molto bene, Gesserit. I don't think this is a real test. I think Matt's making this up. <laughs> oh, shit. Oh, you've not done. Okay. Thank you for joining. We're really happy to have you here uh, and, and to talk about Dune. I, I will ask, what is your general experience with Dune? I know you, so you host Sword and Laser, hugely successful yeah. podcast. So you're a sci-fi, uh, you know, expert. Where does Dune fit uh, in your world and what's your experience Well, I'll be it? honest. So I'm the, I'm the sword in the sword and laser. So I'm the fantasy nerd. Mm -hmm. um, but I read Dune as a younger person. Um, and then we reread Dune. Oh, gosh. I can't remember when in that timeline. Uh, but we did. And so I've been really excited, super excited for the film. But I'm not like a Dune head. I haven't read all of them. I haven't read, you know, the the Brian Herbert stuff. I haven't like gone super into that world. So, you know, it's it's I'm a fan, but I wouldn't say like I'm an over the top fan, like with some other other series out there. Well, I think that's one of the interesting things about it. And we've talked about that a couple of times is that there's not really Dune heads per se. I mean, obviously we're doing a podcast on Dune. We're, we're fans mm -hmm. of the work, but like I haven't read the Brian Herbert stuff. And like, you know, I, I guess we'll get in the course of, of this podcast. We'll be forced to at some episode number, but like, there's not like, you know, there's not, it's not like the same kind of fandom that you find with like, you know, Harry Potter or you find with like, you know, other you know, classical, you know, like even like Lord of the Rings, right? Like people right, like right. memorize. You don't all. see a lot of Dune cosplay. Exactly. Out and about. Exactly. Yeah. 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 The still suits yeah. are uncomfortable. No one wants to do that. Right. So I was a big fan of the hardcore band Shy Halud back in the day though. Oh yeah. Oh. Yeah, there was a, a, a great hardcore band. Interesting. Uh, I'm not sure if they were from the East Coast, but I saw them play there a number of times. Oh. Um, and I always was very tickled by the fact that they were a Dune reference. And of course, Grimes has a whole album that is, is Dune references. So there's like- Real, a, Wait, really? Yeah, Which one? It's like called like Giddy Prime or something like that. Yeah. 
literally oh, every man. literally every song nice. is is June that references. Makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, I can see her being into that. Yeah, right? It checks out. It's, it checks, yeah, it checks out. out. <laughs> yeah, that's amazing. Well, we, we definitely, um, this podcast is not exclusively for people who are, have read Dune or are into it. Um, mm-hmm. I got to know Jason because he was posting on Twitter over the last like 18 months. Every time there was any glimpse of Dune, I could just see him kind of frothing at the mouth and getting excited. Yeah. So, so I joked about starting a Dune podcast and he's like, sign me up. And so yeah, here we the are. Images, the photos, everything. Like I am, I am super stoked for the movie in a way that I, I haven't been excited for a sci-fi film in a long time. Um, especially Oscar Isaacs. Like he just looks so amazing. Yeah. Um, so I'm, I've got some excitement going, uh, you know, hopefully fingers crossed. Will we be able to go to movies yeah. at that point? I don't know. It's okay. I'll watch it at home if that's what they end up doing. Like I just I just want to see it. Yeah, I feel this I feel this ends with it never being released somehow. I feel it's just I, I just have that feeling that's like, oh yeah, no, it's gonna be twenty twenty one, it'll be twenty twenty two, and it's just gonna be like Yodorarski's doing part three. Yeah. yeah. We're actually yeah. gonna get a chance to put this theory to the test. Yeah, we'll live it. We're actually gonna do that right now with a brand new segment, Dune News. Would you like to know more? It was announced today that for the 10th anniversary of Inception, it will be re-released into theaters on July 17th, and it will feature, in theaters only, an exclusive preview of Dune, Wonder Woman 1984, and Godzilla vs. King Kong. <laughs> yeah, it's like a teaser. They're going to have a teaser before, uh, before it. And they're basically doing the Inception re-release because they wanted to push Tenet back a, a little bit farther. So it's like kind of a, it's a, the, you know, the entertainment business is making up its theory of how it's a business in 2020. And this is the summer edition of that theory. Good luck. One week later, the first official trailer will debut uh, during Comic-Con, the online virtual Comic-Con. Online. Yeah. Yep. Yep. And then the trailer will also be attached theatrically for Tenet on July 31st. That's another one I do want to see. I do too. Yeah, I'm into it. So who here is interested or willing to go into a theater to go see a Dune exclusive background preview? I, I, I can't do it. No. I can't do no. it for Dune. Uh, no. It'll leak. We'll get it yeah. anyway without having to risk the coronavirus. I'm thinking Honestly, like I hazmat suit. Like, Yeah, we can wear the suits that they wear in Arrival. That's a good segue. Exactly. Perfect. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, so that's that's the latest uh, breaking news. I do want to just call out for folks. Again, we are working our way through Dune Messiah. I'm in about um, about a third of the way through the book right now and going to continue through that over the next couple of weeks before we pick that up. But next week on Dune Pod, we are going to be studying Timothy Chalamet. So the Kwisatz Haderach himself in his 2017 coming of age romantic drama, Call Me By Your Name. Ooh, nice. <laughs> Army Hammer is great. Um, and it also has Michael Stuhlberg, who is in the movie tonight, um, playing his father. So very excited to see Timothy in the role that earned him his first Oscar nomination. That's very exciting. So that's next week. Call me by your name. All right, shall we? Let's do it. Yeah. Let's get into it. Arrival is the quest for understanding of ourselves and those around us. When mysterious alien ships touch down in locations around the globe, Louise Banks is the language professor the military turns to for help communicating with them, alongside physicist Ian Donnelly. Tasked with deciphering the alien's language, Louise begins the process of learning how to talk 
but more importantly, how to think like them. She strives to overcome the barriers of time and mistrust with the aliens and her own fellow humans to avert an all-out war. She must decide whether she and Ian will embark on a journey that only she knows will lead them inexorably to the pinnacles of joy and sorrow. Arrival. That's good. That's good. Well it, done. It's interesting because like the, the synopsis makes it sound like um, you can imagine a action sci-fi movie that sounds like that. Like where there's like a confrontation with aliens or a confront like an aliens arrive and it causes this big conflagration. And that's in the obviously the background of this movie, but it's such an interior movie. It's, uh, you mm. know, it, it's such an in, like an inward looking movie. Totally. Yeah, it's super interesting because I, even having read Story of Your Life, which is the short story by Ted Chiang that it's based on, I knew it wasn't that kind of movie. And yet I, I, you go into it and you're still in the back of your mind like, oh, what's going to what's gonna go wrong? Are they going to change it? And so there's always that kind of like that feeling while you're watching it that something could go horribly wrong. Of course, it, this is spoilery, right? Yeah. Uh-huh. Okay, so of course things do go wrong, um, and that is a, a bit of a scary moment. But it's it's really it's not that kind of movie. Mm-hmm. But man, it is just such a beautiful film. It, it is so mind blowingly gorgeously shot and acted, and I I was so happy getting to rewatch it. That sense that you were talking about about how it is so inward looking. And how there is so much. I actually found it more enjoyable my second time watching it now, even better understanding what happens in the film. Right. Like, I, like, you know how they say, like, spoilers don't necessarily ruin a a movie for people. It actually can sometimes enhance it. I felt like I had a much better understanding of what was going on in the film. And I was looking for things now that I think on my first watch I didn't pick up on, even though I knew the, the idea of the story. I, I was surprised by that too on rewatching the movie because I also had read the short story uh, and had seen, you know, saw the movie when it came out. And I was surprised that I actually had, and maybe this is just me losing my mind, I had forgotten actually the underlying reality of the film. Like, and so when I, I, I mean, I remembered it was like, oh yeah, there's like a thing with a bootstrap mechanism or whatever. But like when it actually clicked into pace, place again, I was like, oh wow, this is a whole thing. And also, like, I'm a father now where I wasn't before. So all the stuff around, like, you know, having a child and losing a child, like, just completely, like, mm-hmm. resonated in some other weird, terrible way than than the first time I saw it. Um, and when I didn't have a kid. And so it was just a it was just an entirely new experience seeing the movie. I felt like I was coming to it fresh and it was a, a delight to rewatch. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. I also had not seen it since the theaters in in 2016 and. I remember the first time watching it being struck with that opening Hannah montage that mm-hmm. sort of lays out and not knowing the twist, you assume it's in the past. And it's such a powerful way to open this film. And especially um, that song that they use. Oh, yeah. I saw that reference somewhere recently. It's a it's a pretty common song for, for evoking tearjerker moments, for yes. sure. On the Nature of Daylight by Max Richter. Oh, uh, yeah. okay. Let me, I'm interested, Veronica, as someone, since you read the story, like, how do you, maybe it's worth just talking a little bit about, like, your experience of the story versus the experience of the movie and, like, sort of how you, how you feel about one, you know, would compare and contrast the two. Yeah, I think, gosh, it's been a long time since I've read the short story as well. Um, I think the main thing is that it kind of, if I remember correctly, you get a little more time 
in the future. Yeah, it it just has that more of a sense of mystery. And when the, when it does become revealed, like truly revealed, I think it's a little more impactful. Yeah, it's one of those rare occasions that I think I actually like the film version better than the the short story version, the written version. I agree. And I had I had the experience of I read the story, I saw the movie, three years passed, I saw the movie, and then I read the story again, just like mm-hmm. to refresh mm-hmm. for this podcast. And mm-hmm. the story's great. And in particular, you get a lot of detail about the language stuff, like the theory of the language yeah. stuff. You get a lot more of sort of like the theory of language, and you get a lot more about like sort of the theory of how the aliens think there's a lot about like for Matt's like theory of least time and a lot about variational calculus it gets like really kind of nerdy in a fun way Mm. um but like the what you don't get obviously is the visual of the aliens and even the and the visual of their language and even the description of that is so sparse and so it feels so thin compared to how richly it's portrayed in the movie and that is just so much the emotional heart of the movie that I was really surprised because my my feeling about Ted Chang's work overall is that it's so emotionally resonant and it's so human mm-hmm. and it's so rich on like an emotional level um, that for the movie to outdo that, uh, I think is a real testament to, to Denny Villeneuve's craft. And it's sort of similar to what we said about Blade Runner last week, which is he took for himself the challenge of, I'm going to take one of the most, in Blade Runner, I'm going to take one of the most iconic science fiction movies of all time. And I'm just going to take the most amazing scenes that you love from that movie. And I'm going to do more. I'm just going to move the, move the barriers even further than you thought possible. Like you like the Voight comp test. How about this crazy thing? And yeah, I feel like he did a similar project in arrival where he took like a an incredibly, you know, beating heart story and just made it even bigger and made it even like you said, like more impactful than it was uh, on the page. So I don't know if you covered this in that episode, then how is your feeling of do androids dream of electric sheep versus the new Blade Runner? I I mean, it's been so it's been it's been a little bit since I love Philip K. Dick and I'm a big Mm -hmm. fan. But like, I I mean, I think I think the new Blade Runner is the is the canonical version. I mean, mean, like it's so good. I mean, Philip K. Dick, the, the issue with his writing is that there's always like sort of there's always a kind of a few pages where you're just like, okay, it's kind of gone completely off the rails here. And like, you know, he's gone a little bit too far into the purple laser that's controlling everything. Um, but you know, right. it's, it's, it, it's still, it's still the genesis of it all. So all due respect, but I think 2049 is to me the best Blade Runner we have. Yeah. People will argue though, that it's not a direct, the, the movie and the, yeah, and sure. the book are not a direct translation, but sure. it's, I think there's, there's enough in there to, I think to make a, a pretty good comparison about which one you liked better. I just love the fact that it's based in San Francisco. Uh, and, and I always loved the one thing that I really missed is, um, one of my theories on Blade Runner is everyone may be replicants. We have no mm-hmm. proof that there are any humans at all. And there's a moment in the book where he's taken to the mission police department and he finds out that all of the people in there are all replicants and he's the only human uh that's in there and he freaks out and has to try and get away oh, or whatever cool. but like that's just cool ideas of of where things are landing the other the other thing uh, that i want to call out up top so we're doing this because denny directed this um uh, and so this is yet more kind of fuel for the fire of understanding what we're going to be getting in dune 2020 in the behind the scenes featurette that i watched today there was the description of this was his first science fiction attempt and he was saying that he'd always been really afraid of science fiction, but he loved it since he was a kid. Hmm. And so the notion now, of course, we think about him as the master of science fiction, 
but the idea of him sort of inching his way in and, uh, and getting into this is, is really cool. Wait, so he doesn't consider Arrival to be... No, Arrival. Arrival. Is, arrival, arrival, is arrival. Oh, I thought you meant Dune. Okay, okay. Because before that, that he, makes just, sense. he just made movies about bodies being hidden in walls and stuff. So. Right, prisoner. I was like, that would be super interesting if he didn't see Arrival as being a science fiction <laughs> yeah. movie that it was or just Blade a human Runner, film or Blade Runner. Yeah. Yeah. It's, a, it's a documentary. <laughs> I was like, that's really deep. Yeah. Interesting. Uh, what, the um, other thing that really struck me on this film is it is Arrival is absolutely gorgeous. Um, so... We went from Blade Runner 2049, which had Roger Deakins as the director of photography. And this is a completely different DP. Bradford Young. Yeah. Um, and it is so gorgeously shot in the opening montage. It's all this like really handheld and it's used throughout the film, but just beautiful handheld and, and close up shots and the editing really reminded me of like, a, look like a Terrence Malick film or something. It's just gorgeous it just like even the color temperature that they mm -hmm. use throughout the film and and that that feeling from being the the scenes shot in the future versus the current well what even is future or past in, in this right. storyline right um but i had a i kind of got like a, a side question for you that i wanted to make sure i asked before i forget about it so did you watch devs yes okay i watched the first did? i watched the first episode so mm. Can you do it without, without okay. spoiling? I got to get back on it. I just, I think it's fair to say that it's, it's a story about free will versus determinism. Yeah, sure. Okay. That's not a spoiler. Um, so I've been thinking about determinism a lot recently after coming off of that. And there was another film too, that kind of touched on that, that I watched right after. Um, but anyway, predestination. Was like no, a, it, that's yeah. another good one. The Ethan Hawke movie. Mm -hmm. anyway. And so this was, I was thinking about arrival through that lens a little bit. And when, when she has Hannah, the fact that she has Hannah and knowing what she knows like that at the time I was like, why did she do that? Like why? And of course that's why Ian's so mad at her like later. Cause he, he must know that she knew and he can't handle that. He can't like get over that fact. And I was talking about it with my husband, Ryan and he's like, well, she didn't have, she didn't really have a choice, did she? And I was like, you're right. She didn't have a choice because in this world, everything is predetermined. It's, it's circular. You know, it's, there's no, you don't have free will really because it's, it's already happened. It's already happened. Yeah. yeah. I love it. And, and that was just, it blew my mind. My, my brain exploded. Yeah. 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 One of the things that's amazing is they unfold her experience of starting to put together what's happening and having the connection between past and present. And it mm -hmm. happens in a couple of stages. So it's like flash forwards almost. Exactly. And like the first time there's some awareness of stuff that's happening there. Then there's the beginning of linking things and passing information mm -hmm. uh, back and forth. And then finally, there is the evolution to being in both places at the same time and able to, uh, to really, uh, share awareness from that. And to me, I wasn't expecting this movie to line up as directly with Dune as it had, but this is the entire concept of Paul Muad'Dib, who is the Kwisatz Haderach and exists mm -hmm. across all times at the same time and is able to use prescience he experiences the future as a memory. And that's, oh. that's how it kind of starts for her. But then as time goes, the more he uses those powers of prescience, the fewer choices he has. 
as he begins mm-hmm. to get locked in. And he describes it, I think, Jason, you use the quote of like walking through a door or something. Um, eventually you hem yourself in. And that, that became his uh, personal struggle in Dune Messiah. Yeah, and the, but the, the difference, I think, between Dune and Arrival is sort of what Veronica was hinting at. Like the difference between devs and, and Arrival and the Dune world is that th- this world completely eliminates the notion of free will. Like everything is already, the, just as you can't change the past, you can't change the future. Paul Muadib's prescient vision believes that there are choices that he can make that can sort of wiggle one way or nothing, one way or, or the other out of the way. And he talks about like how in a given moment, even if a different word is uttered, it will change the future. The, he's got mm-hmm, more of sort mm-hmm. of a, uh, where they also kind of end up playing with in devs, like a, a multiverse theory of certain choices cause different branches to, to go right, off. Right. Um, but in a in arrival, it's just whatever's happened has happened. Whatever will happen will happen. And we're just, you know, we're just living through that and we're experiencing this, you know, shining moment of now, but that's a artifact of consciousness. That's not a fundamental. Or you can live in the, the Rick and Morty view of the multiverse where, uh, there is actually no like time travel back and forth and you just destroy all the other multiverses as you make a different decision. Right. Um, and just melt your previous self down. Right. Yeah. Yep. Right. Yeah. There's that one also. <laughs> That's like, I love the one where they sort of broke their world. And so they just jumped into another universe that was the closest to theirs. And they're like, ah, this is close enough. This will work. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, but, but she does say that she makes the choice, right? Despite knowing the journey and where it leads, I embrace it. And I welcome every moment of it. She would choose it, but she didn't have the choice. Yeah, and in the like, book, and in the book, it's the all the passages that are about addressing her daughter are written in future tense. Like they're written as like I, w- you know, you will say to me, like you know, she knows what's going to happen. Like it's mm. it's it's already written. Uh, she's already experienced it. Uh, and like the, that's one place where I think the concept comes through, um, a little bit cleaner in the, in the, in the book or in the, in the written, in the written story, in the, in the written story that the, the conceit is they rely on this thing, this physics concept called, uh, called Fermat's, uh, theory of least time, which is a way of solving the refraction problem of light by, uh, pretending that light can sort of see its endpoint and that the direction that light to the path that light takes between two mediums, um, creates uh takes the least amount of time to get from one point to the other but when you th- when you phrase it that way it sort of makes light seem like it has like a conscience intention and like understands like oh i got to get to this point in the in the least amount of time uh, and so that's what opens up this idea in the story of uh aliens who see time this way who see time as existing as like a uh as something which can be experienced both backwards and, and- forwards and the thing for me, actually, that visually helped me so much this time around watching it was the concept of writing the sentence with both hands right. at the same time. Mm-hmm. And like when you visualize that as as time happening, there's like you you have to get it right to say the right thing and they have to be working in perfect concert together in order for the sentence to have meaning. And to me, that was like that visualization of her writing on both sides with the what the 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 nano 
particles or whatever it was that they used to communicate. Right. I was like, oh, yeah, man, I get it now. Right. If you could do that, you would be able to see. Yeah, it's basically it is like sort of her water of life moment where she's mm-hmm. because she's immersed herself in the language of these beings who perceive time this way. She now has the ability to uh, she now has the ability to perceive that as well. Right. So let's let's walk a little bit through some of the high points of the of the film. What was your initial take on the on the actual the arrival event? This is something that's been done many times in in many films. Like, what was your take of how that unfolded? And and you know, her like sitting on the couch watching overnight, falling asleep, looking at at societal reactions and things. For a film that came out in 2016, it it felt really current. It felt um, kind of eerily current to what we're going through right now. Yeah. Very prescient. Um, kind of the, the idea of watching disaster or not even disaster, but something world changing happening on television and that kind of numb feeling that you can sometimes get where it's, it seems like it's happening around you and yet you are somehow disassociating from it. Um, it felt a little bit like that. And I, I don't really know why she, out of all the people around her, reacted that way. Maybe it's because, in some sense, she already knew. I don't know. Um, mm. But it felt, <laughs> yeah, it, it felt a little bit too real for me. I was like, dis- I was disappointed at that moment when, I, I agree, it felt real. And I was disappointed by the competence of the federal government in this version. <laughs> like, I mean, yeah. like, in our version of reality compared to then, I was like, oh man, like, their version of the government can, like, get you know, Forrest Whitaker on a helicopter and land in the lady's backyard that they need and they recruit her right away. And they've got a task force going in Montana that's fully stocked and they're up and running with satellites and everything. They've got it all figured out. They got, you know, the (laughs) the top physicist who also, you know, is a, is a good looking guy, like out there (laughs) ready, ready to solve it all. And, you know, I was like, we would, you know, we can't even get like people to wear masks. Like this is not an equivalent. This is not an equivalent operation. This is a lighter timeline. Yeah. This is a lighter timeline. So, so um, it's interesting when Forrest Whitaker approaches her, she really wants to be involved. Well, I liked it how she was like, yeah, I'll come on board, but I need, the, the, these are the things I need. Mm-hmm. And that is a, you know, that's my final offer. And I kind of really appreciated that because she's like, I can do the job, but I, I can't do it without a team. I can't do it without, you know, being there. I need to be there. Right. And at first, obviously, they're like, no. And then she does that amazing like language riddle against the the other expert out there. Um, Sanskrit. Which, you know, that, that felt confusing to me because if they didn't know the answer to her riddle, why didn't they bring the guy? Because yeah. he gave an answer and he didn't know that that was the right answer or the wrong answer. I like that. <laughs> I like this that. world in which like an army colonel or whatever, Forrest Whitaker has to take like her riddle from wherever yeah. she is, like across the country on a helicopter. To Berkeley. To, to Berkeley. Berkeley. Yeah. Ask the question, be like, okay, the answer is, all right, it's a disagreement. Like, I let think me, that right. was not satisfactory. Let's, let I me, let me go check called. this. It might have just been a Zoom, right? No, like, they, they landed in her backyard. Do you think, let me ask you this. Do you think Forrest Whitaker's uh, terrible Brooklyn accent had anything to do with her willingness to join the team? Because like the like when you- She's per- like another mystery I have to solve. Because <laughs> he sits down yeah. and she's like, he plays her the tape of the alien speaking. He's like, 
what do you hear? Any words? Any phrases? Like, he's got, like, some <laughs> terrible, like, it's not how Forrest Whitaker talks. Like, I would prefer that he was just doing, like, Saw Gerrera from, uh, right. you know, you know from, from the Star Wars movie of, of just doing, you know, just doing, like, Borgullet or something, like, instead <laughs> of this ridiculous, like, yeah. terribly bad accent. And he's he also, from Texas, I just yeah, found out. It's not, yeah, he's not from Brooklyn. Uh, no. He also says this thing, which is ridiculous, which is like, um, I have to keep, he's like, you have a top, uh, you have a top secret clearance and I'm doing everything I can to keep people with top secret clearance, like away from, away from the site. Like, just to be clear, there's 1.5 million people who have top secret clearance. Like if his job is keeping them all away from Montana, it's going to be a busy, it's going to be a busy job. Yeah. Um, so they, he agrees. He tosses her on the helicopter where we are introduced to Ian played by Jeremy Renner. Um, who lays out a quote from Louise's book. Language is the foundation of civilization. It is the glue that holds the people together. It is the first weapon drawn in a conflict. Louise, this is uh, Ian Donnelly. Louise Banks, Ian Donnelly. That's quite a greeting. Yeah, well, you wrote it. Yeah. It's the kind of thing you write as a preface. Uh, dazzle them with the basics. Yeah, it's great. Even if it's wrong. It's wrong. Well, the cornerstone of civilization isn't language, it's science. Saying that yeah. language is the cornerstone of civilization and kind of really emphasizing the importance of that. And there's something pretty cool about having a linguist as the as the protagonist of a book. What was your take on on Renner and, and his performance? I I, you know, he was good in this. I have a hard time like unhawkeying him. Yeah. Sure. I guess at this point, like she, she needed something there also that was a little more human, I think to, to ground herself with. And I think he, he did a good job of, of that, but also he was really like respectful of her job and her intelligence and supportive and like, didn't give her shit. Like, just like, you know, it was like, no, she knows what she's talking about. She's, I might be the expert in this stuff, but she is by far the expert in this side of things. And so it was nice not to have that. I guess I'm so used to that kind of back and forth between dueling male, female scientists in these films, like contact, you know, and it has like to be emotional kind of or antagonistic. Whatever. Yeah. Relationships. Well, hold on. Contact is a five-star movie for me. Yeah. No, like, I love contact. Okay. But I, like, yeah, no, I'm agreeing with that antagonistic between like the male and female yeah, yeah. scientists. Yeah. yeah, yeah. The, like, I have a hard time. You, you said you have a hard time with Jerry Renner not seeing him as Hawkeye. I have a hard time just not imagining like his, the scat record that he recorded. So unpredictable, I gotta tell you. And it gets Wait, like, oh, you don't know about the Jeremy Renner record? What? Well, no. you, so I gotta tell you. Well, please, Matt will drop an audio clip here for the listeners at home, but oh, my sure. rendition, my rendition is he has a record that gets spoofed quite often, particularly by Jesus and Mero. This will be order White Castle at 2 a.m. and shit. Like, <laughs> <laughs> Fucking let me get some clean strips too. <laughs> I don't care about my body. Where he goes, like he's got he's got a whole thing it's it's oh, rough no. it's a rough scene <sighs> but i do i do want to go you also mentioned uh you know his performance being in support of her character which i think is correct it also reflects how they casted the movie like amy adams was the person they wrote the role for and was the mm -hmm. you know the only person they asked to do it she's just 
an, um, she's just an amazing actress. Like she's a, like an absolute like phenomenal actress and just kind of blows away everyone else in the movie. You know, even Michael Stolberg, who's one of my my favorite my favorite character actors, she just she just annihilates everyone. Uh, and I think like it's interesting like that one of the things she says in some featurette about being cast for the film was how it was great that Jeremy Renner was willing to take this role as a supporting role, like as like the supporting scientist. And so mm-hmm. the whole dynamic really does work where she, you know, is the lead and is the person that's being kind of helped by everyone else to kind of solve to solve this puzzle and, you know, does it just acting the pants off of everyone. Yeah. Yeah, it was a, a really terrific performance. So they uh, they make their way. I they, they don't kind of make it clear. Hopefully they don't take a helicopter from the East Coast all the way to Montana. But yeah, they, we don't know. <laughs> but they are they, they arrive uh, in Montana and just the shots there. These these aerial shots were just absolutely cr- incredible with all the, the clouds and then just the people. The, there's like the fence of people kind of holding them back. You can yeah. see where they're just like against the, the human barrier of, of the military. I thought that was that was super powerful. That sense of scale was really like when she's when when they're flying in and she's just trying to even see crane her neck in the helicopter to see where the ship is. You really get this sense of how just unbelievably massive they are. Yeah, I had the same note, um, Jason, about how organized things were, how the logistics were so good. That that was really awesome. So they get in there immediately. They're seeing a somebody being taken out by medevac, which then later Weber says, you know, you're, you're better than your replacement. So you assume something, something horrible happened, but there's this whole psychological concept that they deal with over the course of the rest of the film, which is they have to go in every 18 hours, no matter what, like it or not. And in the initial time, it's just 15 minutes later. So I love that concept of the pressure is on the clock is running and you know, they're going to be just trying to figure out how to make it happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. When, when Weber keeps coming back in is like, you gotta, you gotta solve this. You gotta fix it. You gotta figure it out. And I'm like, Jesus, man, like she just got there and she has to crack this alien language. Like give the woman a few cycles in the, in the, in the spaceship for right. crying out loud. It'll take, give a, her, it'll take her a, her footing a little bit. <laughs> yeah. He's yeah. both got a bad accent and he's a bad project manager. He's like, exactly. doesn't, doesn't know how to set realistic time, timelines or deadlines. Yeah. Okay, so we get to the first entrance into the ship, and I love the shot. They take the cherry picker crane mm-hmm. up uh, to, to get to the underbelly there. One thing that was so cool is it's it's like dark. It's almost like night, even when they're outside under the ship, and that just conveys this sense of it's so big and they're so cut off. And then once they're inside the actual ship, you're looking at this incredible tunnel on the way, all of the, the gravity changes and things. That was just fantastic. Yeah. And you also get into some of like the materiality of the ship, like sort of how like, you know, like the, this quality of the material that you get then when they're walking into where the actual aliens are. But there's something like of her touching it and just there's there, it, it draws you in. You want to know what this ship is made out of. And I guess their theory was that it was made out of some element that doesn't exist on Earth or doesn't exist in our concept of elements. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and But like it's it's just got some it's it really makes you ask questions of what is even what is even this thing made out of like how is this possible like let alone how did it get here who are these who are these creatures it feels yeah. alien i think that that scene where ian is running i can't remember if it's ian or if it's louise are, are is running their fingers alongside the bottom of it as mm-hmm. the cherry picker is getting underneath that entrance port mm-hmm. um and then they come up into the tunnel 
And in that moment, I kind of was like, I kind of get why her predecessor like couldn't crack it, because that the over that overwhelming sense of of otherness, I think, and especially if he I don't know how far up there he got, if he actually had a chance to see the heptopods or what, but his brain just broke. Like to me, that's that's what I always pictured is that he his brain just broke. And you can kind of see her starting to like crack a little bit, like just on that initial like figuring out the gravity, like having to come to terms with what is right side up, what is front and back, what is happening. It's pretty impressive. I mean, it's, it's your brain is almost going through that on a much lesser scale in that moment of trying to make sense of it. But yeah, I can, I can understand why someone would lose it going through that situation. I played a lot of Call of Cthulhu RPG back, back in the day. <laughs> and you know, that, that previous person definitely failed their sanity role and, and got cracked. There you go. And for sure, the heptopods, you know, have a Cthuloid uh, oh, yeah. uh, look to them and, and coming across dimensions. So I think this was also sort of one. I think that scene of the like the kind of the perpendicular gravity was also one of the 2001 homages in, in the movie where, uh, you know, it's it's like the dock, like, you know, like the docking of the ship or 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 the, you know, the the stewardess on the the the, yeah. the flight. Um, I felt that was an intentional kind of nod to Kubrick, of which there are many. You know, they clearly established Ian is really psyched to be there. Like he is smiling mm-hmm. and excited. Louise is completely freaked out. Her hands are shaking. She's really scared. She's in it. She's going to go for it. Uh, and I love, she has to be, you know, led over that first jump, but she makes it once she gets there. He tries to do it himself and falls. Uh, so I, I kind of like that. But there is a shot where they flip around and you see, after all this time of a, a, uh, oppressive inside the ship, you flip around and you see the grass and the people walking around like way down that mm-hmm. that tunnel. That, that was really cool. So- the other kind of very interesting choice that I loved here is right as they begin the interaction, it cuts and it's them out of the ship again. Like, what do you think was that choice there not to show that first set of interactions and, and what happened? And it went poorly and we don't know why. Right. Yeah. I don't know. I, that, that to me, that's one of the funny things to try to think about because it does, it obviously goes poorly because she's kind of upset and Colonel Weber is a little bit like, all right, well, we'll try again another 18 hours and Ian's being supportive. So I, she just didn't, didn't nail it, but we don't really know what happened. I, I think like, I, I like, you know, it's, it, there's an equivalent with how they're introducing the aliens as a whole, where you kind of, you know, it's sort of like the shark in Jaws, like you, you see only bits and pieces and it's, you don't really understand even what you're looking at until the final scene with the aliens, uh, when she's inside their enclosure. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I think there's some kind of just classic suspense building there where it's like, we'll give you a little bit, but like, we're not gonna, your brain's not ready. Your brain might melt if we show you everything that's going on here, like just right off the jump, which I appreciated. So she's back out there. And as you alluded to earlier, Veronica, the pressure's on from Weber. You've got the CIA agent who, you know, is being somewhat reasonable in terms of this, what his job is to do threat assessment and try and be in a protective stance. But you certainly have a lot of pressure uh, there. But I love the sentence diagram. And when I was in elementary school, I loved doing sentence diagramming, but I didn't expect to get to see it in a Hollywood blockbuster. Okay, this is where you want to get to, right? That is the question. Okay. So first, we need to make sure that they understand what a question is. Okay, the nature of a request for information along with the response. Then we need to clarify 
the difference between a specific you and a collective you, because we don't want to know why Joe Alien is here. We want to know why they all landed. And purpose requires an understanding of intent. We need to find out, do they make conscious choices or is their motivation so instinctive that they don't understand a why question at all? And, and biggest of all, we need to have enough vocabulary with them that we understand their answer. I thought that was so smart because it really does for you know, a layperson like me explain why language is so difficult and why you need like the world's top experts to work on this to figure it out. It's not, it's not as simple as just a one-to-one translation. And you know, having to think about like what even is the way we view reality through language and how it forms our understanding of what reality even is. Like, that's why it's so difficult to figure out how to communicate with someone whose sense of reality is completely different from ours. And how do you find those common ties between, between languages to even start figuring out how to communicate? And she gives him, she also gives him like the kangaroo story at this point, yeah, I think, yeah, right? Yeah. To kind of get him, because like Weber, I think it is now, now, now that you guys have clued me into this, like Weber really is like the worst manager that they could have put on the case here. <laughs> like he's constantly applying pressure. He's easily kind of like pushed off with just like a little bit of something, even if it's a completely made up story, like the kangaroo story. Yeah, he just needs something to tell his superiors. He's like, I just you know? need, I just need, help yeah. me, help me manage up. I just got to yeah, get through yeah. the There's next meeting. There's a kangaroo. I like, I don't know. I don't know. But then it gets all aggro. Like, she's like, I need to tell them, like, later when she's like, I've got new words I need to teach them. He's like, why you got to teach them? Why you got to teach them gun? Why or why do you got to teach them eat? Why you got to even walk? What, what is it? I, you got to run these words by me. You can't just go in there with words. It's like, chill, my guy. You are really doing too much. You need to just, the lady obviously knows what she's doing. Just take run the kangaroo story again. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So they go in a second time and they begin to use language. You start to see some some progress happening. But on the third time in, this is where Louise realizes that she has to figure out how to break down the barriers. This is ultimately about exposing yourself, trusting in building um, through gestures of goodwill and trust with people who are different from you. Um, so she takes off her suit and this, I had a note here about the cinematography. When she's up on the wall, she is so bright. The, like, the white light on her is so bright, and then everything else is so dark. I just loved how those contrasts work. Um, and it's after this first trip that she begins to have her first visions of Hannah. Yeah. Mm. I wanted to, two, two, two quick things there. One is, um, first of all, the, the whole lighting within that that cave like where they do the encounters with the aliens is is amazing and they built that whole set practically we talked about with blade runner 2049 how our guy denny newtown doesn't like to you know do things green screen so they built the whole set uh of of everything that you saw there and uh, and so what and so when they the the cinematographer brad bradford young was able to basically create this giant James Terrell installation, you know, like a similar kind of vibe to some of the stuff that Deacons ended up doing um, in Vegas in the in Blade Runner 2049. And it's just it's just phenomenal. Like I, they, they create something that you've never seen uh, as a as an alien as an alien environment. So I love all that. The one thing the one leap in that scene that you're talking about where she takes off her suit, where she says they need to see me. I, I agree thematically that it is about like showing vulnerability or wanting to make a greater connection or all that stuff works. 
But I, when I was watching it and she says that they need to see me, I'm like, do they? I don't know. I mean, you're not even looking right. at you're not even looking at their eyes like their their heads, like actually another 30 feet above what you're looking at their toes. So I don't know if you've got exactly the right. I don't know if that's true that they need to see you and you're taking yeah, that a frame of reference is not quite there. Yeah. And, and the bird is freaking out. So you might want to think about like, you know. How, how you're approaching this whole situation. Right. I definitely thought something was going to happen with the bird and, and the way that they portray that. That was a nice tension and, and misdirection there. So then you have this like two minute long voiceover where he explains how language works and the fact that there's no time in their language. It, it is a case in which they kind of have to do a, a tell not show um, and kind sure. of, you know, they do like the Sapper Wharf hypothesis. They do like this whole they do a whole bunch of explication. The one thing I will say that really makes this all work for me is that it's also when the soundtrack, the composer really gets to show off. Um, and his, his name's Johan Johansson, and he is doing all of this crazy stuff. Um, unfortunately, he's now yeah. deceased, but mm. he does um, amazing stuff in this movie. Uh, and the featurette on the recording of the soundtrack is is just this guy had a vision for what he wanted to do. He was using these like 16 track magnetic tapes that he was just layering over again and again to create these really strange ethereal sounds. He was doing stuff with actual choruses and actual singers. And that's where all of the, all of that really begins to kick in is during this. So to me, you get a little, you get a little treat um, in addition to your, your plot exposition or your, your theme exposition. Yeah, that was really incredible. So coming out of that, we have um, Ian and Louise have this kind of sweet moment sitting outside and and kind of talking. And she basically says everything in there comes down to us. She knows that it, it's going to be them. They're the ones that are going to have mm -hmm. to figure out how to do this. Um, so again, we have more memories of Hannah and she's starting to sort of get that sense of what the connection is between the two and starting to think about it, but not not clearly on there. And it's on their next trip in that they get the message of offer weapon and then uh, China misinterpreting that as use weapon, or maybe they correctly interpreted it as use weapon, but mm -hmm. it's, it, it doesn't necessarily make complete sense to have it be weapon as the word, but from a storytelling perspective, it kicks ass. Like that sets the whole thing in motion. You can understand why the world is reacting in the way that it is. Well, it is that that whole thing she talks about is how they have been having their whole basis of understanding built around competition, built around gameplay, built around a, a winner and a loser. And so the vocabulary is completely built on that. And so that's why the Chinese, you know, misinterpret, mistranslate, I guess, in a way, or maybe not even, maybe that's just the only way they could have communicated that thought was through those, that word. Um, and so she figures that out pretty quickly, but it is a matter of now fixing that, that very difficult problem because everything was already so tenuous. And so on a tightrope that being able to fix that after it's gone over that ledge is, is nearly impossible. Right. So we have the attempted bombing right after this, which speaking of contact, you know, it definitely gives those vibes. Of, yeah. You know, Jake Busey isn't there, but you have, another, uh, you know, military guy that, that is, is being radicalized watching YouTube mm -hmm. videos or whatever. Also very prescient. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no doubt. Um, so we have now this moment of Louise beginning to write in their language, essentially with her mind, right? Like she's mm -hmm. able to just use her hands and, and kind of do that. What was your, your take Jason there? So I, this, I, I love, I do think this is where the book 
is a good compliment to the movie because there's a lot of descriptions in the book of her, how, of how she how, how she is constructing ever more complex sentences uh, and expressing them through logograms. Uh, and the whole trick is that you have to know where you're, you have to know the end point once you start. And so there's this description of, you know, she starts with a single line and she knows that that single line is going to connect like both the subject of the sentence of the paragraph she's writing. It's going to encode some part of a glyph that's going to be a declension on some verb that she won't get to until much later. And so like all of that description gives you is like kind of what the voiceover is doing. And that's that's what you get in the book um, kind of shown, uh, whereas the Ian voiceover in the movie has to kind of tell you that's how the her brain is being reprogrammed. Um, but when it actually when you actually then get the payoff in the movie of her just doing it, uh, it's it's more beautiful because you can see the language and it's so, uh, you know, it's it's such a, a beautiful, like, visual language. It was so gorgeous. Like, I love it. Mm -hmm. uh, the idea of how they actually created the language, they they created the glyphs, they made, and, and the notion of, like, taking pictures and translating it and then they got it to where it's instantaneous and then they've got it to where it's a video feed and they can program stuff in. I like how it sort of unfolds. You see them getting right, better like and better. Figuring it out. Yeah. yeah. Figuring out the best process. Apparently Stephen Wolfram of like Wolfram Alpha did uh, a whole bunch of stuff on, on this movie. He was, he and oh. his son did a lot of the stuff uh, related to like any of like the sciencey stuff that you see on screen, like the whiteboard that, that she erases part of. And it has a bunch of basically cosmological, you know, like uh, physics stuck on it. Like Stephen Wolfram was the one who like put the stuff on the whiteboard and then they used, wait, wait, uh, hold on. Did, did, did you like, like screen grab that and like look at it and dust off your old physics chops? St Stephen Wolfram, he has a blog post in which it, in which he, if you want to know everything that's on the whiteboard, everything that's on the whiteboard has a reason for being on the whiteboard. It's all about like the propulsion of the spacecraft and like how they're trying to figure out how it works and folds time or whatever. Um, and it's which just, you did yeah. want to know. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I, I did read it, but then additionally, they also had like a full like language guy, like you have on, on movies mm -hmm. when you're doing constructed languages, um, uh, do stuff on both the sound design for the, for the language, which was phenomenal. Um, and as well as like what the logograms look like. Nice. So we get to the point, Louise is, is able to be in multiple places, past, present, future, uh, and, and able to get a sense of what's happening and to share information. We, we finally get to the heptapods, uh, revealing what it is that they, what they want. And this notion of in 3000 years, we're going to need your help. Yeah. That's so cool. Like, so it's good. like, and it's so sad too, because you know that. Abbott knew he was going to die. Like he was going to enter his, his death phase. Yeah. And he knew that, but it was worth it to him. And he did it anyway. And it's just, it's, that made me really sad, but also like, Oh, I, I, the, the, all of the stuff that's shot inside, uh, it, I think that's like one of the, one of the few areas where they obviously did use some CGI to like make, you know, like the, the hair look wavy and everything like that. But it like mm -hmm. really, it really works. Like you really kind of come across like the aliens for the first time in that environment. And you didn't like it. You didn't I, like it. Matt. I, I just found the hair to be distracting. I understood. I, I understood what it was they a were little distracting. I understood what yeah. they do, what they were doing or what they were going for. And I love the fact that it was this really alien experience. That was very cool. And I love the, the pod coming down and her have to get in mm -hmm, and you know mm -hmm. the implications there of her going rogue. Um, 
But what about the alien itself? What do, what do we think about the design of the alien itself? Loved it. Loved it. I loved it. Yeah. There's this, it. there's this description they have where it's like some, I forget where I read this, but it's like they wanted the alien to be um, wise like a whale or something like that. Like it was like, mm. we wanted to have the royalty of a wise whale. And I was like, yes, you nailed it. Good job. Good creative brief. You That's nailed really it. That's really interesting. Yeah. yeah. Because you can get that, that sense of like timelessness and age and, and wisdom. Yeah. You're totally right. Wise is a really good word for that. And they do kind of look like whales, like their skin yeah. and their shape a little bit. Like if you crossed a, a gray whale with a giant squid. They're maybe? also kind of unflappable. You know, they, they keep things. Well, they've pre- seen, they know what's happening. Yeah. They know what's going to happen. Yeah. You can't surprise them. <laughs> Good point. Good point. <laughs> How did she breathe in there? I don't, that, I had that, questions I about that. Stretch. Yeah. I had questions about that. I don't I'm assuming think- they can control whatever they could, they could give her what she needed. Gills. I guess. Yeah. The, I do Gills. think I, one, one point, and we made this point in 2049, the sound design is phenomenal. Like all of the sound, the way the aliens sound, uh, is, is amazing. Uh, and there's a good feature out about this where it's basically this, this, this man and woman who, who live in New Zealand, these two Kiwis who like did all the sound design for the aliens and everything else in the movie. But they talk about how they went and got the sounds for the alien. And they're like, well, when you shoot a movie, you don't use stock footage to make your movie. So when you create your sounds, you don't use stock sounds. And the next shot is them like on this four day hike into like the north, like the, the you know, subtropical forest of the North Island of New Zealand to like go record some rare bird that they think is the key to making the alien sound. I'm like, guys, you do, you're, you're really, you're really proving your point here that you don't, you know, that this was not done with stock, with stock sounds at all. You Dude, went, though, that's like, I, so I went to school for audio production ah. and one of the, one of the things I wanted to, to do was fully sound and sound design. Um, didn't do that, went into podcasting <laughs> instead. Um, but that, that reminds me of like my favorite sound of all time. My favorite sound story is okay. You probably know this and you just don't realize it, but what is like the most epic animal noise that doesn't exist on the planet that you've heard in a movie? Chewy? No. Uh, T-Rex? It's, yes. All right. T-Rex. T-Rex from Jurassic Park yeah. sure. um, is a, you know, a pastiche of like, you know, seven different animals. And to me, that was always like the coolest story. It's totally how cool. They made that. And so this is very similar. Like I can imagine that kind of, process of trying to find the right reverberant tones and the right kind of like bassiness and how to make that from something that's natural, but feel supernatural in a way. It's super cool. I really respect it. Yeah. Amazing. So we come to the climax of the film where we have general Shang and the passing of information uh, between him and Louise. So general Shang played by Zima who is a character actor who's been in a million things, was absolutely awesome on Veep um, as the president of China. Um, so here he is in, in general mode. So what did you think about the interaction between the two of them? Like it felt to me like he was clued in and he had a sense of what was going on. It wasn't just that he was speaking to memory. He kind of is mm-hmm. looking at her, giving her these kind of knowing looks. Am I reading that right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, for yeah. sure. He knows at that point, at that point in the, where they are in the timeline, he knows what's happened. And so he knows that she's there to, f- to go back and bootstrap the thing that needs to happen that already happened. Yeah. And she's figuring it out in real time. Right. 
And so there is this kind of confusion of like, she, she realizes that he knows she just has to wait for him to tell her the right things. And I, I thought that was really like that tension there of like, I know you're, I, I have to figure this out. You have to tell me this thing. And he's like, I'm going to tell you the thing. Don't worry, I got you. It's, <laughs> right, it's right. coming. It's coming. Give me a sec. She's like, but I don't know your phone number. He's like, now you know my number. It's fine. Yeah, <laughs> I know. Don't and I wonder like, did, did past Louise be like, I'm going to be really weird about this at <laughs> yeah. the time. So just go with it. It'll be fine. <laughs> be super stressed. Yeah. I, 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 we'll I laugh about I'm, it later. I was yeah. surprised how um, emotional I found that scene, and I don't, actually mm-hmm. I don't I don't even understand it now. Like having reflected on it for a while, like like obviously there's a tension, there's a dramatic tension of like it's the climax of the movie and things could go wrong. But you know, I mean, I've seen the movie before. I know that they're not going to get shot. Like Michael Stuberg's not going to unload on on Jeremy Renner. But that um, that is an amazing moment, right? Like when they realize there's a call from inside the base to China, their reaction is com- again completely appropriate. To be yeah, like, we gotta sure. find out what the hell is going on. Oh, we have yeah. a spy inside here that is that is trying to break things. No, that's bad for Continue. sure. But but like I, I I don't know. There's some like particularly the scene where he he said where she's like I you know like where he's telling her the the words of my dying wife like that whole thing to me just like I don't know it just felt like somehow it it it, it was more emotional to me. Uh, this character that you don't even really know, General you know General Chang is like largely off screen. And the idea of like his the, his wife's final dying words and that like kind of emotional reality was was more uh, kind of po- poignant to me than even the stuff with her daughter, which is obviously a, a real button on the whole movie, too. But mm-hmm. um, I, I was I was surprised how amped up I got um, uh, watching that this time. It was really beautiful. Yeah, she, she had to say something impactful. She had to say something only he would know for yeah. sure. So, uh, so we get there, uh, we're able to avert the crisis and, you know, we, we think things are unfolding. The world is moving forward. The aliens, uh, retreat, which she describes to Hannah as the beginning of her story is the day that the aliens leave. Uh, but certainly she is now trapped in this prescience and maybe has always been. Uh, but I, I love that. I love that idea. Um, final thoughts, Jason on the film. Oh, man. I mean, so I think, again, I just want to praise Amy Adams performance in the movie. You know, one of the things that she talked about um, about why she wanted to do the movie was that like as a she talks about her process as an actor being like approaching things linearly and understanding cause and effect for her character. And that's part of her process. And she wanted to take on this movie as a challenge. She was like on maternity leave and didn't want to do movies at this point in her life, but wanted to do this movie because the underlying reality of the film caused her to have to not approach her role or in her process linearly. She had to instead approach it with this more holistic understanding. And so to me, that's like a real kernel of understanding the whole movie. Like the actor who played the main character had to herself change her thought process in order to get into the conceit of the movie, which is that um, time exists as a manifold and not as this progressing reality. And then in order for you as the audience to fully experience the movie, you obviously, you know, I have, do not have prescient thought as a result of having seen the movie, but you are challenged to, to look at the world in a different way or to imagine what that is. And I think it's telling that in our conversation about the movie, we started with that point too, which is like, what is, what is fatalism mean in this context then? Uh, and so on every level, I think it really, uh, it, it's a really well integrated movie. Like it, the, the theme is felt, 
uh, in the performances and the design and uh, the plot of the movie completely. Veronica. Time is a flat circle, man. (laughs) (laughs) Just what it comes back to. Uh, No, it's, it's, I was just really happy to get to watch this again. Um, It's, it's just such a beautiful film. So well acted. I, I am just really happy that such smart, beautiful sci-fi is still being made. Amen. Yeah. And it doesn't have to be all explosions and, and bombs. It can be, you know, it can be really, really super thoughtful. Yeah. And beautiful. And, and yep. emotional like that, that to me is the powerful, mm-hmm. I love the idea of treating science fiction in a serious way and being able to really showcase it a, as a way for us to understand ourselves and our relationships with each other. So fantastic movie, uh, Denny, two in a row, two weeks in a row, uh, knocking it out of the park. All right. We now have our very first Dune pod letter, which oh, wow. I, which I did you write it to yourself? I did not write it. I did, <laughs> did not write it. Did a future it. version of you write it to your past <laughs> oh, self? Snap. Hey, uh, this podcast is in the wild. People are listening. And so, <laughs> okay. so let me let me just read you. This one comes from listener Christopher Jones. Dearest Duners, I've been lucky enough to listen to your first three episodes and I want to thank you for the show. H, you're doing a commendable job on editing. Sounds great. Three things. One. I finally started reading Dune so I could follow the conversation and I hate you all for it. <laughs> Two, it seems to me that Denny has a lot of work to do to adapt a story that seems pretty unadaptable considering the story revolves a lot of inner monologue. Fair point. Yeah. Three, Concern. your guest catcher to God is 100% right about Harrison phoning in his performance in 2049. Without a doubt, Callista laid that lazy 1995 Eric Clapton looking ass outfit out for Harrison right before he took wow. off in his Cessna airplane Snap. to film his scenes. Love seeing Deckard's blaster again. Wanted one for a long time. Also, H, stop trolling. No one believes Deckard is a skin job. Not even Harry Ford. Love you. Wow. KLB. This is a good friend of mine. Okay, that was a great letter. (laughs) It's like, that's very familiar. Yeah, that's a good, it's still nice. It's nice to get notes. And yes, like last week, the big surprise was that our guest catcher, the big failure in Blade Runner 2049 from his perspective is that Harrison Ford is in the movie, which I think is a, a fire take. Yeah, definitely. And that's it for this week's episode. Next week, by popular demand, Catcher returns to the pod for 2017's Call Me By Your Name. Give it a watch and then join us here as we discover it together. If you're enjoying this podcast, please leave us a rating and a review as it really helps new listeners find the show. Dune Pod is a production of H Industries, a member of the Paper Keg Radio Syndicate. The episode was produced and edited by me, H Our artwork is by Catcher, and our theme music was composed by Toby Forsman of Whipsong Music. Thanks for listening. We'll see everybody next week.